This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Ransom, creator and executive producer of Nightlight, a horror podcast featuring creepy tales written and performed by Black creatives from all over the world. This week, we kick off Season 7 of Nightlight with a tale of an unusual asylum. But before we get to the tyranny of men, I want to say thanks to our newest patrons, Sarah, the Good Morning Antioch podcast, Cleopatra, and Mother of Clove. Thanks also to Darren for increasing their contribution. You too can enjoy ad-free episodes and help us pay a living wage to everyone who works to bring these stories to you. We rely on listeners like you to keep this podcast going, so please visit nightlightpod.com legion to join the Nightlight Legion and get a shout-out on the podcast plus occasional bonus content. You can also make a one-time donation to support us at nightlightpod.com donate. And don't forget, Nightlight merch is available, and you can support us by sporting Nightlight-branded gear. Just go to merch.nightlightpod.com to get your t-shirts, hoodies, notebooks, and more. Now sit back, turn out the lights, and enjoy Malaga. Written by Michelle Mellon and narrated by Sandy Green. Rose sat in the corner of the room and watched the water run down the wall. That always happened when it rained, or when the snows were melting or when too many of the residents on the second floor used the water closets at the same time. As much time as she spent watching the walls in this place, her thoughts usually went to some place far away and long before. The place and the time were important to her for reasons she couldn't quite name. She just knew she needed to go back there and keep them with her as often as possible. Yet, every day that went by muffled a bit more of the past. Each hour sagged into the next, and no matter how much Rose tried to blot out the screaming and the moaning and the smell of desperation and despair around her, periodically she came back to herself. It was in one of those moments, dragged away from her long-ago thoughts, that Rose considered the water running down the walls. Maybe it was more than leaky pipes and weak construction. Maybe the walls could sense the suffocating hopelessness of this place. Maybe the walls were crying, and though some part of her felt she had plenty of reasons to join in, she never shed a tear. Instead, 
Rose watched the progress of the rivulets as they pooled in the corners, and it made her feel not quite so alone. She could not remember how long it had been since the island. The island was the opposite of this horrible place. It was warmth and light and laughter and the rich smells of the sea. There she had a home and a school with no weeping walls and friends and mama and daddy, and the promise of her baby sister, Emma. Emma. Rose hopped up and ran the two flights up to the nursery. Her dark pigtail swung around to slap at the freckles that sat like tiny chocolate drops on her cocoa cheeks. When she was about to enter the room, she prepared herself as usual. Despite the tall ceilings, the nursery felt too close and confined. It was a pungent maze of tiny cots and decrepit cribs, and despite the unceasing din of the other floors of the institution, the nursery remained unnaturally quiet, day and night. She tiptoed through the room, its inhabitants lay on their beds silently rocking or whimpering without real sound. Although very young, most of them were sick in body or mind, or both. Sometimes lying in their own filth, or even that of others, without daring to make a complaint. Rose found Emma's crib in one of the back corners of the room. That day, it was closer to one of the room's two windows. The windows had long been painted shut, and the dust and dirt layered onto the panes served as an effective curtain against any sunshine outside. Her baby sister lay in the crib, crunched against the wood railings by the bulk of the other babies sharing her space. Still, her eyes opened wide at the sight of Rose, and she squealed and rocked as much as she could in her confinement. The sound was a shock in the silent space. Too late. Rose heard the hushed tread of an attendant striding across the brittle tile floor. She marched past, bumping Rose aside with her ample hip. Then she leaned into the crib and slapped Emma on the mouth. Hush, abomination, the woman said through clenched teeth. Her face looked like it had been roughly carved from the palest slab of Booth Brothers granite. Square, rough and unlovely amplified by the harsh pull of her drab hair into an unforgiving bun. Her hands were balled into fists, and Rose feared for Emma. Unlike her big sister, the tears came easily for the baby, but she had learned quickly in that place. She didn't wail. Instead, she licked her bruised lips and whimpered as the attendant turned and stalked away. Rose had found that anger was useless here. Children who resisted were severely punished, and for someone like her, who thrived in the light and warmth of others, it was worse, because no matter how polite or how recalcitrant she chose to be, she was ignored. The others like her, the ones from the island, were gone. It had been a while, and Rose couldn't remember exactly when or how or how many they had been, but she knew. She and Emma were the last ones. Rose pulled herself up along the railings of Emma's crib. While the cots in the room were mere inches from the floor, the cribs were unusually high and old and unstable. Rose didn't want to risk toppling Emma or worse, bring down more of the wrath of the nursery worker. She looked down at her baby sister and her brown eyes burned. Emma's face was still scrunched up, and Rose lay a soothing tan hand on her cheek. 
Emma shared Rose's brown eyes and curly black hair, but had the fair skin of their father rather than the darker skin of their mother. The sisters blinked messages to each other. Rose also murmured nonsense words and the same empty promises she'd made for all of Emma's short life, about running away, about going home, about being happy. After a while, Rose slunk back down to the scuffed and sticky floor and shuffled along the line of beds to return downstairs to the older children's ward. Her visits to Emma always filled her with a mix of emotions that were too much to translate into something useful. Now, she sat quietly, once again watching the walls all by herself. She had already made her rounds through all these children. Day after day, month after month, Rose tried to make a friend. Most of them ignored her, just like the attendants. For a brief time, it seemed a few had warmed up to her, but then suddenly they seemed poisoned against her. Occasionally, they would look her way, eyeing her suspiciously, then quickly look away again. It was always the same, even with the new wards. Eventually, Rose gave up. She ignored the sounds of the children coughing or sniffling or wrestling or humming around her, just as they all behaved as if she wasn't there. Since no one cared what she did, she found ways to entertain herself. On one of her explorations of the institution, she had wandered two floors down into the basement. Surprisingly, it was the one place that was less depressing than the dim, dirty, smelly floors above. Doubtless, it was because Rose felt a certain kinship with the space. Much like her, the basement was ignored and forgotten. It had been stuffed with broken furniture and toys and endless stacks of boxes labelled Main School for the Feeble-Minded that appeared to contain old clothes made useless by being both worn out and outdated. Rose had forged a path through broken bed frames, seatless rocking chairs and string-free marinettes, pushing the boxes aside to form walls and rooms. Despite the smell that always came from the intersection of the darkness and the damp, the basement gave her some small sense of comfort. After an eternity where she felt certain the boxes kept multiplying and rearranging themselves directly in her path, Rose found the door. Or rather, the corner of what appeared to be a hidden door. And the door was what she thought about now as she muffled her wardmates from her thoughts. Which boxes did she still need to move? Did she remember seeing a handle or a knob or depression on the section of the door she'd uncovered thus far? Had she seen any tools she could use to pry the door open if necessary? And even though she didn't know where this thought originated or what it meant, Rose wondered whether there was still enough time to get the door open and make it to the other side. It was days later, while the other children were marched around the institution for their exercise, that Rose slipped away. Not to that special place inside her mind, but down the hallway, down the wide stairs to the foyer, and around the corner to the basement doorway under the stairs. She moved with practice steps over the rocks and ruts in the unfinished floor and was unfazed by the significant temperature difference between the raw underground space and the wards above. Rose battled her way through the column of dry cartons and her hopes soared. Hidden behind the latest stack was a pile of soggy, disintegrating boxes and heavy cloth sacks. She slowed in her efforts and sighed, not out of frustration, but sudden remembrance. 
Back on the island, they would stack boxes to make secret forts and use sackcloth for flags or sails on imaginary boats. Rose could almost feel the sun and smell the sweet sweat of the other children as they ran around and played their games. She had not felt the sun since coming here, and she was never warm enough to sweat. She looked around, enjoying not for the first time the fact that the basement was quiet, but not in the tense and unhealthy way of the nursery. No one would miss her if she never came back, except maybe Emma. But every visit from Rose seemed to bring Emma punishment, and she could see that Emma's eyes were starting to lose their light. Rose knew how Emma felt. She remembered. She almost remembered. She was forgetting what it was like, what it had been like, what it could have been like, what it was supposed to have been like. Maybe if Rose opened that secret door, she would remember everything she wanted. Then she and Emma would go through it together. They would make so many new and wonderful memories that they would need to sort through them to figure out the happiest ones to keep. And they could forget the things they wanted to forget and never ever come back to this place. She went back to work. Hours later, she had cleared away the last of the clutter and stood before the door, thinking now that it was impossibly tall, as if it had stretched out the walls that held it. Unlike everything else in the basement, the smooth metal door seemed undisturbed by the cold and the wet. Yet, it was also unbroken by a handle or keyhole or obvious means of entry. Rose sat down with a cry. Wet storage boxes spilled their contents around her as she leaned her back against the door in misery. It seemed like no matter what she did or where she went in this place, she was surrounded by wet. Diapers, puddles, other children in their beds, adults weeping in the halls and the endless dripping of the walls. She was almost ready to give herself up to it and drown as the universe clearly intended her to do. None of it brought the soothing calm of the sea. None of it brought joy like water had back on the island. The island. She realised she couldn't remember its name. Couldn't remember the name of the place that had been her home for, well, she wasn't sure now how many years. For all the time before she came to this place. And the island was the place where, well... There were things she didn't want to remember about the time just before coming here. No, that wasn't right. It wasn't about coming here, it was something about being brought here. She hadn't come willingly. She didn't want to be here. She didn't belong here. She hung her head and leaned back harder against the door. After a few minutes, Rose sat up. Then she leaned back again. She wasn't imagining it. She could feel something through the door. She remembered the sensation. It was heat, the real heat of a warm sun, like she remembered from the island, and for a moment thought she heard the long-forgotten sound of the laughter of her friends carried on the breeze. Rose was standing on the beach, staring into the water. Although there were plenty of lath pots already sprinkling the bay in order to capture lobsters, her father had left hours earlier with some of the other men, all of them mumbling about needing more, and her mother was home napping after a long and restless night. The previous evening, Rose heard her parents speaking to each other in whispers in the small home's main room. She slipped off her cot in the corner of the bedroom and crept closer to understand them better. I don't know what we're gonna do, her father said. 
We'll manage, like we've always done, her mother soothed. I still have some references. I'll take in more laundry, some sewing. Things have changed, he interrupted. It's like they're noticing us now. For 50 years, our people have been out here minding our own business. Now the folks over in Phyllisburg act like we're a plague that's going to bring down their newfound prosperity. I can't take you and Rose and the baby into a world like that. But you could pass. You're light enough and we could... Could what? Hide and pretend you don't exist? That's why our grandparents came here in the first place. To live free. That's just it. Rose's mother said. We have. We are. We don't need them. We grow our own vegetables, catch our own fish. But we don't have our own medicine or clothes or new tools, her father countered. Ever since they built us that schoolhouse, they've treated us like wards. We never should have asked them for help after they gave us the school, Rose's mother sniffed. We've always had an understanding and never needed to go begging before. I know, but times are changing. Making a living off the water is no longer enough to sustain us. The truth is, we do need them for some things, he sighed. But the only thing they seem to need from us now is that we go away. Rose had crept back to bed, not quite sure what it all meant. Like her parents, she had a fitful night's sleep. So the sun seemed dull this morning glazed and sleepy like Rose herself. She watched her reflection ripple across the waves until she heard the other children shouting and laughing. She ran to join them, her feet leaving deep prints in the pockets of the sand that filled slowly with water in her wake. During the afternoon school break, Rose went home to get something to eat and help her mother with the laundry. She found her in the bedroom, struggling to get up from the bed. Mama, are you okay? Rose rushed to her side and wiped the sweat from her mother's face. Her mother smiled and clasped Rose's hand. I'm all right, baby. Just got a lot of kicking from the inside. She patted her pregnant belly. I think it's almost time. Rose soaked a rag in water from the pump outside and went back in to place it on her mother's forehead. She was already asleep, breathing loudly and resting her hands on her distended abdomen. Rose kissed her mother's cheek and went outside to fold the clothes. Her father came home early that afternoon. Rose was playing chase with the other children along the beach when he and some of the other men pulled up in their small boats. No luck today, one of the men said to no one and to everyone. Rose's father concentrated on securing the boat and gathering his things. Rose liked to watch him work, even though there seemed to be less of it these days that much she'd understood from the previous evening's exchange. It sometimes made him grumpy and short with her and her mother, but he glanced up and smiled when he saw her. Rose hesitated. When the smile held, she ran over to him. And how's my Rosemary today? He asked. Fine, Daddy, but Mama's been awful tired. She said it might be time. Her father picked up his gear, grabbed Rose's hand, and hurried them away from the water toward home. Rose shook her head at the loud thump overhead. She must have fallen asleep against the door. She heard the thump again, which was a sure sign the chairs were being brought out of storage for the weekly church service. She shook herself awake. Even though no one seemed to come down to the basement except her, Rose kept a small stack of easily moved things in front of the door as quick protection from prying eyes. 
She listened for any invading footsteps, then pushed the shield of boxes aside and sat back down, slumping with her back against the door's cold surface. As soon as she had closed her eyes again, Rose felt the metal grow warmer. Suddenly, she was standing in front of the door, which was now slightly ajar. She wasn't sure if she was dreaming, although she couldn't remember dreaming since she'd come to this place. In the darkness of the small crack of the door, Rose saw nothing, but the smell wafting through was of the sea and the sun and the island. She stood and absorbed the scent, wrapping it around her like a blanket that was strong enough to withstand the deepest, most dire chill. Rose sniffed deeply, as much as she might will it, the door wouldn't open further, and though she wouldn't be missed or taken to task, Rose realised she couldn't stand in front of the door forever. In fact, as the door closed on its own and she pushed her small stack of boxes back in front of it, Rose got that feeling again. That important inner voice had another inexplicable message for her. It was time. The nursery was minimally staffed in the afternoons during the designated nap hour. Rose walked in unobserved and went to where Emma lay in her half of the crib. Rose looked around and pulled up a chair. It's time, she cooed to her sleeping sister. Rose reached in and hauled Emma out, staggering backward under the unexpected, uncooperative weight. She checked the hallways and slipped down the stairs around the corner and down into the basement. Her progress back across the uneven floor was much slower than usual, but eventually Rose wove her way through the maze of boxes. She slid down against the door until she was sitting with Emma resting against her chest. This time, the metal warmed quickly. As Rose struggled to stand up, the door propelled her forward as it swung wide. She turned and staggered around the door's thick edged and through the opening, clutching her sister tightly against her. They were met with salty air and a sea breeze and the rugged northern beach of Malaga just up ahead. Rose could already see the wide rock shelves that seemed to grow strong and straight from the very centre of the earth. She remembered the homes that once sat flat on the sand of the lowlands and the other raised up on the mounds of crushed shells that spilled out between the supports like secret sun-bleached treasure. We're home, Rose whispered to Emma and to herself and to the birds riding the breezes overhead. She set Emma carefully down on the sand and closed her eyes as she took a slow step towards the waves. Rose stopped when she heard a scream coming from the edge of the water and her eyes clamped shut with pained remembrance. She heard a muted cry coming from the direction of the school and turned her head as the first of her tears began to fall. Then, for only the second or third time ever, she heard Emma wail. But when Rose turned around, her sister and the doorway were both gone. Back in the nursery, two attendants stood over one of the cribs. A large baby fussed and fidgeted on one side of the cramped bed, while a smaller child lay still and stiff on the other. The little half-breed's finally gone, said one. She spoke without emotion. To her mind, the situation was merely immutable fact like the cold and the imminent burning of that tiny body in the institution's furnace. The other attendant nodded. Good riddance, that's the last of them, she said with near relief. 
She had been there longer, back when they had all been brought in from the island. Men, women, children, black, white, and all shades between. Degenerates all, folks said, living beyond the reach of decent society and taking full advantage. The good Lord may have taken his time in vanquishing a people who sinned with drink and miscegenation, but she had been among the many who praised the reckoning they finally received at the hands of Colonel Plasted. She and the members of the Temperance Society had been willing to overlook the governor's previous political misstep to support him in reclaiming Malaga in the name of decent God-fearing people who knew their place and could make good use of the land. The senior attendant gave one last glance at Emma's tiny corpse before turning away with a small twinge of something best unexpressed. She, like so many others, intended to move forward with the welcome release of forgetting. On that final day, the men from the mainland appeared and said that everyone on the island had to leave. Rose was outside helping her mother walk around the yard, trying to help her bring the baby into the world a bit faster. The men walked up to them and grabbed Rose and her mother by their arms and started dragging them toward a bunch of boats lined up at the beach. Rose's mother started screaming and holding her belly, and when her father rushed outside to stop the men, they hit him hard on the head and dragged him to the shore too. They threw her father in one of the boats with the other men, his eyes half-closed and blood covering a growing lump on his head. As they pushed Rose's mother into another boat, she stopped screaming and grunted and groaned. There was a gush of liquid and a small trickle of blood staining her thin, pale dress along the line of her legs. Then her screaming began again. While the men from the mainland scrambled to try to figure out what to do, Rose ran. She didn't know where to go. The men had set buildings on fire and smoke was everywhere. But she could see up on the high ground that the schoolhouse was untouched. So she scrambled up the steep staircase, ran inside and slipped behind some boxes stacked in a back corner. Seconds later, the door opened and a couple of men came inside. Besides the woods, this is the only place she could have come, one of them said. I'll stand guard while you look around, said the other. The first man glanced at the rows of decks as he walked up the aisle to the stack of boxes in the corner. Rose pushed out past him and ran blindly into the grasp of the second man waiting at the door. Got her, he crowed to his companion. Rose bit him and he shoved her away. She cried out as her ankle twisted and she fell hard, her momentum slamming her head first against the hard, wooden edge of the desktop and then against the metal frame and feet at its base. The first man kicked her where she lay, unmoving. Now what are we gonna do? We don't have any more time to waste, said the second. This just gives us a little more room on the boats for the journey back. Let's go. The two men trekked back towards the shore, concerned only with avoiding hazards from the village burning down around them. Ahead of them, the island's men, women and children cried as they huddled together in boats that would soon take them away from everything they had known over to the foreign world of mainland Maine. No one saw the first of the beams fall through the ceiling of the schoolhouse, sending a shower of embers across the floor. No one heard Rose as she awoke to burning cinders on her cheeks and lifted a heavy, hurting head to cry out for help. 
No one else tasted the smoke that made her cough and choke and greedily swallow air that worked with every breath to stifle her into permanent silence. Rose watched from a faraway place when they took her family and the others away to the mainland. Her father was never the same after the blow to his head during the struggle. Slow to move, slow to focus, slow to speak. One day, many months after the Malagites had been taken into the institution in New Gloucester, he went to sleep and didn't wake up. Her mother had been sick since giving birth headaches and other pains that never seemed to go away. For the first few months off the island, she spent most of her time in bed, crying and confused. Eventually, she succumbed to the shame and the sadness and the certainty that she had lost something precious that she could no longer remember. That's when Rose came back for Emma. She didn't know how she could be there, in that cold and unforgiving place where she had never been before, or why some people could see her and others couldn't. She didn't know if or how Emma really knew who she was. She didn't know why sometimes she remembered what had happened to her, and other times she only remembered what it was like to be a normal little girl. But a normal little girl wasn't left to die alone and terrified as her skin crackled and her insides bubbled. A normal little girl's remains weren't scattered as ash to the ocean breeze and forgotten beneath the sand and ruins. A normal little girl didn't haunt her baby sister and try to bring her through a mystical doorway back to an island where they didn't belong because after the eviction, the men from the mainland came back to relocate the island's small cemetery. Half a century of souls was given a new final resting spot on the grounds of the institution for the so-called feeble-minded. And just like that, the people and their presence on the island were erased, except for Rose. She had not been relocated with the living or with the dead. She didn't belong to either. Now she walked a lonely beach on a lonely island on rock and sand that no longer recorded any evidence of her passage. She watched as the sun turned the waves into rows of sparkling peaks. She watched the shadows the light cast upon her brown skin, but was no longer able to feel its warmth. She was an untethered relic of a lost colony that had lived on love and been destroyed by hate. And if Rose had anything left of what could be called hope, it was that one day she might be found and known and free. Thanks again to our patrons for supporting this podcast. Because of your support, listeners around the world get creepy tales in their ears every other week. If you want to join the Nightlight Legion to support us, go to nightlightpod.com legion. You can also make a one-time donation via PayPal at nightlightpod.com donate. If you're unable to support us financially, word of mouth is the next best way to help. Written reviews help us the most, so be sure to leave a few kind words on your podcast platform of choice. You can also give us a shout-out on your favorite social media at nightlightpod, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com ransompodcasts, or rate us if you're in a hurry. Audio production for this episode by Davis Walden. Join us next time, and be sure to leave your nightlight on. You never know who might be mourning you in the dark. 
the Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.